It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Something is wrong, but I don't know how to name it. And you know, we have to name things in order to be able to face them, to be able to deal with them. And so I don't know what to call this thing. And I'm just going, Ugh. but as a scholar, I keep writing, I keep researching, I keep thinking, I keep teaching, I keep writing, I keep researching, I keep thinking. And then in August, 2014, I'm at, in my home office, and the TV is on. And I look up, whoo, and Ferguson is on fire. I mean, the flames are everywhere. And it didn't matter. I had the remote in my hand and I'm flipping the channels and it didn't matter. Let me see my left hand. It didn't matter if I'm MSNBC, watching MSNBC. Yeah, CNN or Fox. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't matter. They all said the same thing. Look at black folks burning up where they live. Did you know that black people were burning up where they lived? Black folks are burning up where they live. What is wrong with black people burning up where they Who burns up where they live? Because one of the things you begin to understand is that America needs the narrative of black pathology. You know, everything would be fine if only black folks would. Right? We've heard this. And then you begin to fill in the blank. If only they would value education. If only they would not be thugs. If only they would. You fill in the blank in terms of that black pathology because that is absolutely necessary in the narrative of America. And so there I'm watching MSNBC, CNN, and Fox, all with the same narrative of black pathology, this black rage they're talking about. Well, I'm sitting up there and I'm shaking my head. You know how you're shaking your head like, mm-mm, mm-mm. And then I realized I'm looking shoulder to shoulder to shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> I'm shaking my head so hard. And I said, no, this is white rage. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Miked Up, uh, an unapologetic, low-country-based podcast from the Charleston Activist Network. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. I kicked off today's podcast episode a little differently than I typically do. Uh, I just wanted to jump into audio from Carol Anderson, the author of not only One Person, No Vote, but White Rage. Um, White Rage is a phenomenal book that I think everyone should read, um, especially if you live here in, in the South, in the Black Belt, and in Charleston, and um, especially coming out of the May 31st uprisings that took place right here in downtown Charleston. Um, White Rage is the, and I'm quoting from the book cover, the unspoken truth of our racial divide. Um, and Carol Anderson 
The back of the book says that Carol Anderson is a Charles Howard Chandler professor and chair of African-American studies at Emory University. And y'all, her, her scholarship is remarkable. Um, I often use her her speeches, um, her presentations, like the one you just listened to, like that little excerpt from a larger speech. I like to include her interviews and audio and a lot of my social media content. Um, in fact, I featured her um, on a previous episode, uh, an interview she sat for with Democracy Now. I, I thought this audio was critical today because of what um, what I've been seeing here locally in Charleston. Um, the the I guess the popular, the more mainstream narrative that's being spun um, is concerning me. Um, I sat in my parents' living room last night for the first time. I I, I ran to their house. Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't typically go to my parents for comfort um, at my age, but I found myself wanting to be near them, wanting to be near two individuals who left the Jim Crow South um, in the 60s toward the tail end of Jim Crow uh, in search of better opportunities for myself. Even though I wasn't born yet, um, both of them were previously married and and had families that they were um, looking to support better. And of course they met and, um, They may not have known they were looking for better opportunities for me and my twin brother, but that's what they were doing. They were looking to grow their families and to have access to more jobs, better jobs, better housing, so on and so forth. And so I I, I went to their house yesterday evening and I sat in, in my dad's armchair He's reclining on the couch. My mom is sitting on uh, a nearby love seat. And I say, you know, y'all, for the first time in a long time, I'm really afraid. And I never uttered those words out loud to anyone, um, family or friend. And it's because of what I've been seeing online locally, what I've been seeing in the comment sections of our local Facebook groups it's what I've been hearing on the ground, on the battery, during protests, during demonstrations, what I've been hearing from white, pro-Civil War, lost cause narrative peddling, um, you know, hate mongering, neo-Nazi sympathizing folks. And I say that specifically because I've seen the presence of neo-Nazis embedded in the group of quote unquote Civil War enthusiasts. Um, I'm hearing things like the new civil war. I'm, I am seeing people, elected officials, justify the killing, the vigilante violence that we saw in Kenosha at the hands of a Kyle Rittenhouse, um, someone who reminds me so much of Dylan Roof. Though Kyle didn't kill any black people, you see the same motivations the same racial grievance. And it's almost as if a number of Kyle Rittenhouses have really been empowered, of course, by the current occupant in the White House. And I say that because I believe it. I say it because we've heard the current occupant of the White House call for violence, stoke the fires. And so that any response to police brutality, to income inequality, to disparity, to gentrification, any any 
outwardly like demonstration against those things are now the, the, if they're if they're met with violence and white violence and white grievance, they've now made it easier to justify that violence. I saw someone underneath a sitting councilman's Facebook post put a group of terrorist group insignia underneath that 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 councilman's post and it included swastikas and other hate groups and then it included the black lives matter flag and this is where things for me can potentially get treacherous they called me a terrorist after i stood up for myself when a woman a wealthy white woman the descendant of john calhoun called me a monkey via emoji they called me a terrorist because someone under my under one of my Twitter comments incited violence. It wasn't me, but because they replied to my comment about the issue and they saw my name up top, they said, well, Tamika tweeted it. She's a terrorist. She liked the tweet. And I never did. And I found myself defending myself against something I could no longer disprove because I know I had either deleted the, the comment or... Or the person, someone else flagged it or it just wasn't there anymore. And everyone was telling me, yeah, you like the tweet. I didn't like a tweet. And this was the, this was the first time I saw firsthand what they do. They call you a terrorist. They turn you, the person that's fighting for equality, the person that's arming themselves with data, statistics, the person that is calling a thing a thing, indicting the practices that made Charleston the number one gentrifying city in America a few years ago, indicting the, the, the powerful institutions like the center, excuse me, the, the city's visitors bureau and their high powered, ultra money, ultra wealthy tourism machine, indicting these institutions that perpetuate violence, that stake a claim on historical memory that erase all things black and gullah unless it's in a passive capacity. When I stood up to these, to these things, I was called a terrorist. And so any violence enacted against me, any violence aimed at me will be justified now because I am a terrorist. And I see them doing it now with the younger leaders. I see them doing it now in the comment sections, your teachers that you know, your elected officials, your school board members, fellow parents, shop owners, are now all saying they want Kyle Rittenhouse. They want Kyle Rittenhouse to run for office. They want him as their mayor, their president, or their police chief. Cut from the exact same cloth as a Dylan Roof, the same white people who suppressed black pain and suppressed black expression of pain after the Emanuel massacre and tried to, to squelch it and tell us, oh, just, let's just hold hands and cross this Cooper River Bridge. Never mind the centuries-long grievance that you all have, this, this, this justified issue you all have. Never mind that. Just hold our hand and cross the bridge and let's sing Kumbaya. And talk about how, how, oh, Nikki Haley brought down the flag when she didn't move on the flag until businesses started to withdraw from South Carolina. And of course, 
That was well after Bree Newsom scaled the, the flagpole and brought it down. They tried to sanitize and whitewash and erase what really the root causes that brought about a Dylan Roof. And they objected to Dylan Roof, right? He killed nine innocent black people. But after what I've seen this week, after what I've seen over the course of two to three months here in Charleston, I hate to say this, but I feel as if if we suffered a similar tragedy, they'd probably justify that too. They'd probably say, well, they must have done something to bring that on themselves. The way they've embraced Kyle Rittenhouse here in rhetoric and comments, the way they've stood up to these kids and made them made them out to be mortal enemies for taking to the streets in solidarity with the folks on the ground in Kenosha, standing up against police violence, standing up against what happened to Jacob Blake. The kids have, and I hate calling them kids, but the younger protesters, this multicultural group of, of younger voices have largely been positive and, 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 I hate saying nonviolent because they never really were they never were violent. What you saw was an expression of fatigue in large part. And you also saw what Carol Anderson just alluded to as white rage. I'm hearing more and more white everyday citizens justify vigilante violence. I'm hearing more and more citizens actually accept the fact that a 17-year-old got in his car, drove across state lines with a long gun and shot three people, killing two. I'm hearing more people that I know that I've done business with say, well, he was fighting back in self-defense when they were trying to disarm him because they knew he didn't fit in with the other protesters. And he shot those people in cold blood to see their crumpled bodies on the pavement and then to see that white boy walk past law enforcement and not be questioned, not be apprehended, not be wrestled to the ground, not be, not even have his weapon taken. He shot two people, excuse me, he killed two people, shot three, and he was able to walk. He was able to return home that night and sleep in his bed. That's where we are right now. It's scary. I kind of, I didn't script anything today, and honestly, I, I halfway didn't even want to record, but I, I really, I'm I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to the younger protesters. I'm afraid what they might do to me. They're so invested in what Carol Anderson identified as that pathology. That pathology in saying that anyone who speaks up against injustice, systemic white supremacy, Anyone who takes to the streets and protests and marches and cries out for help, that they 
are the thugs. They are the violent faction. They're they're, they're spinning this narrative. And as always, <laughs> as always, I look to the press to see what the response would be. And I see in the Post and Courier on Sunday, this past Sunday, on the weekend of the 57th anniversary of the, of the March on Washington, I see the front page story recounting the May 31st uprisings here in Charleston. A dense, well-reported, thoroughly crafted timeline of events that took place on May 31st. But the placement of that story, the resources poured into that story, the amazing graphics and grids and and in in all types of of digital assets that were created for that story when you read it online the amount of sources the amount of photos it was so much poured into that story on the weekend on the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington. They took what happened nearly three months prior and made that the focal piece on that specific weekend. It's hard for me to think that that was unintentional. And after looking at mainstream media, now switch the narrative from, okay, protesters are justified to take to the streets, to now I'm seeing mainstream media outlets Shift to, oh, this is too violent. There's a lot of violence going on. Oh, look at the violence in the streets. And not, and not talking about the root causes enough. You know, last week we had NBA, WNBA, MLB, MLS, you name it. Athletes across the country went on strike. After seeing what happened to Jacob Blake in Kenosha, they went on strike. They refused to play. And the world again stopped for a moment. But yet the media subtly started to to change the narrative to violence. This is violence. All this violence. All this upheaval. All this crime. The riots. The, you know, the chaos, the mayhem, as the Post and Courier you said, uh, has, has said. It's not only just a black pathology that folks need to justify heightened suspicion of protesters speaking out against systemic white supremacy and publicly affirming their love for black lives. It's not just a pa- black pathology anymore. They're creating another narrative that pits one against the other. It it reduces this fight to violence or nonviolent. And maybe that's not even the most accurate description. But there is something at play here. And I thought that initially the Post and Courier here 
a newspaper that's growing rapidly every month, letting go of quality seasoned journalists and growing its reach to places like Greenville, South Carolina and the PD and Columbia. The Post and Courier chose on the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington chose to feature a story that it would help stoke fear that would encourage suspicion that would let you have doubt about the motivations of the students of the young people of the multicultural citizens who took to the streets on May 31st and since May 31st so many of their demonstrations have been uneventful they had, they had nearly looked like the 2000 3000 people that we saw at the end of May. They've been very peaceful. They've been very simple. They've stayed on the curve. I should, I've led a couple. But yet, if you read the paper, you would think May 31st happened over and over and over and over and over again. So instead of planting the seed of hope and commemorating this holiday and evoking the names of local local activists from the civil rights era that have direct ties to the low country and to this state, and instead of taking that weekend for what it really should have been regarded as a monumental moment in all of our history, but black history specifically, instead of honoring that moment, right? The narrative became violence, destruction, mayhem. Fear is what sells, not hope. To see so many people travel to Washington, D.C. during a pandemic, no less. So many black people Make their, make their way to Washington, D.C. Pack out the mall. <laughs> Pack out the Lincoln Memorial. And stand up for themselves. And commemorate an amazing point in American history. To see that image juxtaposed to what we printed here on the on, on this past Sunday just told me everything I need to know about what my life is going to look like for the foreseeable future. I'm going to continuously fight against this pathology that people just need to act right. If you just comply, black people, students, if you just shut up, Students, if you just fall in line, black people just take the crumbs we give you from the CVB. Black folk, just take the crumbs we give you as we displace you from your homes on the peninsula and close your black schools. Just take it. Take the income inequality. Take the disproportionate stops by the North Charleston PD. Take the school to prison pipeline. Take the arrest, young Palmetto Rose Artisan. Take the arrest, young boy, selling his own culture. 
Just take it. And if you don't take it, you'll be met with violence. I'm going to end this, I guess what I would kind of call a rant. I'm going to end it with a speech I just posted a couple of times on social media. It's an excerpt from a larger speech or a longer speech by MLK, where he himself, of course, someone who is anti-violence and who is about anti-violence, someone who um, is anti-war, someone who taught us all how to demonstrate civil disobedience. You know, he, he didn't want folks to riot, but he had something to say about people who do engage in riot who do engage in uprising and rebellion. And I'm going to end this episode there. I I really wish I had something. I, re- I really wish I had something more thought out to say, but I just want you to know that I'm scared. I'm afraid for the first time. I'm afraid of what white folk are allowing to happen. The justifications that they're making for vigilante violence. They're already laying the groundwork to say that if anything happens to black bodies from this point forward, it was probably justified. They're going, this is how they do it. They, They remove our humanity. They make us out to be terrorists. None of us are armed when we're out in those streets. None of us are armed. And what you saw on May 31st was a direct response a direct response to white rage, inequality, injustice. Walter Scott, Dylan Roof going to Burger King after killing nine people. The school to prison pipeline, disturbing schools law. 16,000, over 16,000 black people being pulled over disproportionately in North Charleston. Asylum seekers. Trapped at Al Cannon at record numbers instead of being given the proper process. What you saw on May 31st was a direct response to white violence. And that was white rage you saw, not black pathology, not terrorism. For a city that has yet to call Dylan Roof a terrorist, it's unbelievable how many will fix their mouths to call students, to call everyday citizens unarmed, to call them terrorists. And they've yet to use that word to describe Dylan Roof. But you know what I always say, they took him to Burger King, so there's that. Here's MLK, y'all. All my Gullah Geechee folks, y'all stay black and y'all stay safe. Take care. Let me say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that non-violence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that violence will only create more social problems than they will solve.
and that in a real sense it is impractical for the Negro to even think of mounting a violent revolution in the United States. So I will continue to condemn riots and continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way. Continue to affirm that there is another way. But at the same time, it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention.